Hi, and welcome back to the podcast. My name is Trisha Friedman. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. This is our first episode of 2023, and I'm so excited to launch a new calendar year of the podcast with special guest Rajani Laraka. Rajani Laraka was born in India, raised in Kentucky, and now lives in the Boston area where she practices medicine and writes award-winning books for young readers, including the Newbery Honor-winning middle grade novel in verse, Red, White, and Whole. She's always been an omnivorous reader, and she is an omnivorous writer of fiction and nonfiction, novels and fiction books, prose and poetry. She finds inspiration in her family, her childhood, the natural world, math, science, and just about everywhere she looks. You'll be able to learn about today's very special guest, at www.reginilaraka.com. I will be sure to include that link and others in the show notes. Before we dig into this week's conversation, we do have some special news from the Learning To organization. Give it a listen. Learning to Asia is back November 2nd to the 4th of 2023. This event will be hosted at the International School of Bangkok. The theme for the next Learning to Asia is sparking change, moving beyond barriers. We are currently open for applications. If you are interested in leading learning at Learning to Asia 2023, please learn more about applications. Our deadline to apply is January 23rd. You can learn more by heading over to learning2.org. We look forward to shining a bright spotlight on the incredible diversity of talent in the Asia region. You'll be able to learn more about Learning 2 by heading to the show notes. And now on with this week's conversation, someone who has quickly become one of my favorite writers, welcoming Vrajni Laraka. Great. So um, I'd love to start our chat by referring listeners to a fantastic interview. So, you know, they're here to to get an interview with you, and I'm going to refer them to another one from the fabulous folks at We Need Diverse Books, where you talk about the story behind your excellent novel in verse, Red, White, and Whole. I need to just pause mid-question to mid-question here to let you know that every time I've recommended this book to someone else, it's like they're grateful to me for the reference because they've enjoyed it so much. So congratulations. That book is just speaking to, I think, every single reader who um, has had the the benefit of making some time for it. Um, In that interview, you speak openly about the process you went through in learning more about experimenting with writing through verse. And I'm wondering, now that that book has won numerous awards, again, congratulations. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on how educators, primarily the, the audience of this show, how might they encourage that kind of creative experimentation? Um, you know, again, sometimes I think it's difficult for learners of all ages to say, I'm going to try this artistic attempt in a completely different way. So what helped you just sort of take that leap and what advice might you have for others encouraging that that same sort of creative leapage? <laughs> Yes, leaping is important. Uh, First of all, thank you so much for having me on this podcast. I'm very excited to be here. And thank you also for the incredibly kind words about Red, White, and Whole. Uh, It's a very special book to me, a book of my heart. And I'm just so grateful um, that it's out in the world and that people are responding to it. Um, So as I've said before, Red, White, and Whole, the idea for it came to me as a metaphor. And I thought, oh, 
if the idea for the book came to me as a metaphor and the metaphor was of blood and all that it means in terms of biology, but also um, family and community, um, if the idea came to me as a metaphor, maybe I should write it in poetry. And uh, then I thought, okay, well, I've written picture books in poetry. I write lyrically sometimes, but I had never written an entire novel in poetry. And what I did <laughs> was that I read every novel in verse for children that I could get my hands on. And luckily at the time, there were many. Um, I first heard of the form, like I first learned of the form when my son was in, I think, fifth grade and they read Sharon Creech's Love That Dog. And what I thought was perfect, like what was so incredible about that book is that, you know, it's, it's a poetry journal of a boy and all the poems in it are written in the style of a famous poet. So you understand that they're learning about these poets in class and then this boy is writing like those poets in order to express something that's meaningful to him. And it's beautiful. And uh, for me, I feel like that's a wonderful way to get children to experiment, students to experiment, is to show them other people's poetry and see what that stirs up in them. And, uh, you know, obviously we don't want people to copy things from other people, but being inspired by other people is incredible. And it's what we all do. Uh, I feel like reading all those novels in verse made me believe I think I can do this too. I think I understand why people chose to write in this format. And I think I understand why I need to write in this format. And then you just have to try. And, um, you know, the the thing about that book is that nobody knew about it, really. <laughs> I really hadn't told very many people I was I had this idea. And I had another novel that I was working on that I was, you know, I uh, promised I was going to write. So that was my kind of, you know, every day uh, I wrote on that novel, tried to finish that novel, and I loved it. And it was in prose. But this was my like secret joy. I got to work on it once a week and wrote whatever for many months, I didn't write any poetry. I just wrote lists of topics that I wanted to talk about in this novel. And I listened to music from the era. And that is the second thing that I would say to help um, students experiment is to listen to music or, because to me, music and poetry are very linked um, and especially music that has lyrics. Lyrics are very much poetry. Um, so uh, take a favorite song and listen to it for a while and then see what you come up with. When I was in school, my friends and I used to often um, make up new lyrics to songs that we loved um, that had to do with our lives. And if you can do that kind of experiment, it's really kind of fun because there's a there's a melody and there's a rhythm that you're gonna follow, um, but it pertains to your own life. And so um, that's another fun way. I think the bottom line is uh, to take the pressure off to have fun and to not make people start with a blank page. Because I think the blank page can be very intimidating. And if you can give them something else, here's a poetic form, here's a song, um, listen to this music and how does it make you feel, uh, and then write about it. Or even uh, take a walk outside. How does that make you feel? Um, I, I love that advice. I think that idea of just, you know, taking the, the pressure away, there's... Um, a strategy called backward chaining. Maybe you've you've heard it referred to it in that way. It's kind of similar to anybody that cooks with any of the meal prep programs. Instead of you know I'm going to create this recipe from scratch, like you know HelloFresh gives you, and they're not an affiliate of this podcast, but HelloFresh, I I do love them when I'm having a really busy week. Here's some of the ingredients, so you're not 
starting from scratch. We're going to support you with this process. It's exactly what you need. Here's the step-by-step. I, there's an exercise I love doing with students where they take fiction podcasts. And so it's sort of, uh, you know, let's take part of that clip or let's start with that character and do the rest of the writing from there. I'm curious, your book Mirror to Mirror, which as I was reading it, it almost, I don't know if you were, if the novel you were working on simultaneously was that one, but Mirror to Mirror almost seems like an additional layer of challenge for the author in switching the perspectives and music of course also plays a huge role in that so was your process with mirror to mirror and again listeners watch for that in march it's fantastic if you loved red white and whole i think you're really going to appreciate mirror to mirror it it also does so much to help open and start a dialogue around anxiety and well-being um was music something you also found yourself sort of leaning into for inspiration with that process? Oh, 100%. So Mirror to Mirror is also written in verse and it's dual POV, which every time I do dual POV, I'm, not, I'm never gonna do this again, I say, and then I end up doing it. So, um, so it's dual POV from the perspective of identical twin sisters who love each other um, so much and also love music. So they play classical music for the most part. Um, but one of the sisters is hiding um, a terrible problem. She's got horrible anxiety and she's hiding it from everyone except for her twin. And uh, when her twin tries to tell her parents, their parents about this to get her sister help, um, the first twin shuts her out. So then the twin thinks, well, maybe all of this anxiety is stemming from pressure because we're so alike. So maybe I need to be different. So she changes her hair. She changes the kind of music they, she plays. Uh, but instead of bringing them closer together, it's pushing them further apart. And then the last part of the book is um, them making a bet when they go to their music summer camp to switch places and whoever, so they have to look like each other, act like each other and play each other's music. And whoever lasts the longest without being found out gets to decide something that's important to them both. So what's interesting, this book, so this was not the book I was working on when I was writing Red, White and Whole. Um, this book came afterwards. And um, the idea for this book, the the impetus for this book came from writing a single poem. Hmm. And it's because I was taking an online class because this was in the beginning of the pandemic where what else were we going to do? I was taking an online class, a workshop on poetry. And it was with with Leslie Newman, who's an amazing poet. And um, she was talking about certain types of formal poetic forms because sometimes if you have a structure, as we said, if you have something to work with, it's easier to write a poem than if you're just kind of looking at a blank page. So, one of the poem, one of the forms she discussed was something called a guzzle, which is um, a form of poetry that is, um, uh, you know, very famous in South Asia and um, the, the Near East. And um, so, and it is also, it's often a song and it's often a song about love and kind of lost love, like a lamentation. So as part of the, I was inspired by this class and I wrote a poem like right there in real time. And the poem was about twin sisters. And it was about a twin who lamented that her her identical twin has changed and that they've lost something, that their closeness is gone. And I wrote the poem and then I was like, wow, like, what is that? Where'd that come from? And then I'm like, what is what is what is the deal with these twins? And so the whole story came from that single poem. Um, and if you have read it, it's called In the Morning. And there's like a refrain at the end of every line that repeats. And so the poem itself was a song, and I knew that music was going to be integral to this story as well. 
Wow. Thank you for for taking us on that kind of behind the scenes. And I, I think that's such an important share for young learners, because I think sometimes we see like a creative force like yourself. And, you know, I think almost there's this harmful myth that it's all just, you know, I have these abilities and these talents, like it's magic, right? And I can just engage the magic when I need versus what you're talking about, you know, having continuing, you know, your education, having mentors, having teachers, trying things out, workshopping ideas that it is about the process. And in many ways, it's about maybe building your creative network as well. So thank you so much for for sharing that, because I think that's such an important message for for young aspiring writers to get. Um, in several interviews, you've you've referenced that red, white and whole that the idea came to you as a metaphor. And I've noticed, uh, you know, correct me if this is wrong, but I think the other works that you've had, you've never had the same illustrator more than twice. And so I'm kind of interested in this idea of how those partnerships, how maybe they've had some impact or effect in your process as a storyteller. Oh, that is such a wonderful question. So, you know, the interesting thing about being um, somebody who writes picture books but doesn't illustrate um, uh, is that even though you have to tell a complete story in, or, in order for a publisher to want to publish a picture book, you realize that it's only half the story because the, re the other half of the story, and sometimes more than half of the story, quite honestly, comes from the illustrations. And um, so I think it's an interesting balance between knowing exactly what you're trying to say and leaving a lot up to the illustrator. Uh, and and, uh, you know, I write both fiction picture books, which include Seven Golden Rings, Bracelets for Venus Brothers, Where Three Oceans Meet, I'll Go and Come Back, and nonfiction -pic non picture books, which include um, The Secret Code Inside You and My Little Golden Book about Kamala Harris. And uh, it's a very, it's, I think what's interesting to me is that in both fiction and nonfiction, the illustrations do so much. They do so much of the lifting. So um, let me give you a couple of examples. Seven Golden Rings was my first picture book. It is set in ancient India, and it is uh, it involves a poor boy trying to become um, part of the Raja's musical troupe to kind of save his family. And it also involves a math puzzle <laughs> and an explanation of binary numbers. <laughs> so Archana Srinivasan, who is an amazing illustrator, she lives in India, um, she took on this project. And I have to tell you, because you know my worry um, was that this book was too complex or that it was very difficult to explain what exactly was going on with the transaction with the seven golden rings um, for young people and also maybe for some older people. And the, her art was so incredible. So first of all, she understood immediately what, what time period we were talking about in ancient India, no problem with the clothing. Um, she said, oh yeah, he would have like a little bracelet to kind of bring him luck and he wouldn't be wearing shoes, but the rich people would be wearing shoes. All this, all these layers um, that, you know, I didn't have to explain that never get mentioned in the story, but she created an entire world there. And then in terms of the math part, she did such a great job with little spot illustrations showing what was going on with the rings that anyone could follow them. Children love this book. They don't have to understand the math. And then at the end, we have a whole explanation of why the math works. Um, so that book was incredible. And there was just a lot of precision uh, in uh, all the, the, the illustrations that really brought the whole message of the book forward, which is that 
we can be creative in many ways. We may think that this is the only way we're going to succeed, but we may succeed in a different surprising way, um, that math and music are linked and that math isn't anything to be scared of. Uh, and that's something that we need to kind of put into our daily lives because it's there, right? And um, in contrast to that, Where Three Oceans Meet is the only other book that where I had the same illustrator and Archana illustrated that one as well. And that is a contemporary story of a girl who visits with her mom and her grandmother to a place called Kanyakumari at the very tip of India. And um, kind of, it's a road trip. Like there, she's looking forward to like seeing the end of the earth. Like she wants to know what's out there. But along the way, she learns uh, what she has already, right? Which is her relationship with her mother and her grandmother. And Archana's work in this book is so lyrical and beautiful. And she makes you believe you're there with this family. She actually took, I think she took her own grandmother and based the grandmother in the story upon her own grandmother. Mm -hmm. There are all these details the floor in the apartment, the saris that, that the grandmother wears that are from her life. So it's it's amazing. This story came from, you know, I went on this trip with my mom and grandma and some other relatives too. Um, and I remember feeling all these feelings, right? I remember that moment where I was a little kid, but I overheard my mom and grandmother talking and I understood what they were talking about. And what they were talking about was how we missed each other. And I... I'll never forget it. So I put that into this story and she took all that emotion and she made it hers. It was it was absolutely incredible. So I guess my long-winded answer to your question is that um, working with illustrators reminds you to be open to other possibilities for your words. Um, that whatever it was you may have envisioned, and honestly, with picture books, I try not to envision too exactly because I don't want to get certain things in my head so that I'm jarred when I see something different. Um, not to get to leave yourself open to other possibilities for other people's interpretation. And then I think there's nothing like that magic. Oh, interesting. And, you know, I, I don't know if this is the case for you. Other authors have told me you know, that it's it's typical that you don't necessarily choose your illustrator, right? That uh, that's a partnership that's sort of made outside of the realm of your control. And I'm, I'm kind of wondering if that maybe like forced collaboration isn't the best way to phrase it, but uh, that, that forced collaboration, does that mirror in any way your work in the world of medicine? I mean, you that's also what I would imagine is a highly collaborative ecosystem where you're dependent on other people to know what they're doing and uh, you know to have that kind of essential competence. Is am I off base on that, or is there some similar ground there? You're absolutely right. And the most interesting thing is that the collaborator that you're kind of forced into the relationship with in medicine, in my experience, is the patient. Mm. People come in, it's their life, right? All you can do is kind of give your perspective on what you think is happening. But the most important thing is to be open to what they are concerned about and what they want and what their goals are. And um yeah. And, you know, and that's the thing the, with the medicine co collaboration, it like it happens very quickly. Right. They show up in your office. You've got 30 minutes to figure out what is going on and, and have a plan and collaborate with them on moving forward to the next step. So, uh, yeah, uh, absolutely. And I guess I'm I guess that's I don't think anybody has ever put that in that particular way. So I'm like, wow, OK, that's that's true. Um, 
every day when I see patients, that's what I'm doing is that I have to be, I have to be there and um, say, well, this is, these are the things that I think are important, but what do you think is important? And, and let's talk about it. Interesting. So with the author illustrator, would you say one of those roles is more like the patient and one is more like the doctor, or is it a dance where you're kind of trading? Uh, oh my goodness. You know, it's very interesting. Uh, so in, so in my experience, right? The way that my books have been is that the publisher acquires my manuscript and then we find an illustrator. And while I don't necessarily choose, they usually either say, we're thinking about this person, what do you think? Or they give me like a few illustrators and they say, what, you know, can you like, what do you think about these people? And I don't think I've ever encountered a scenario in which the people that they suggested were something that I couldn't, you know, that I didn't like, like everybody, I mean, I think that what's interesting about illustration is that there's so many different styles and so many different ways to tell a story um, visually as well. Um, that's so funny. So, I mean, I think, pro I don't know which one is which, but you start with the words, right? And then the basically the, the illustrator goes off and does sketches and character studies based on those words. But then at, when the illustrations come in, sometimes you find you don't need so many words. That's the part that's really interesting. You can just... You can take away some of them because the illustrations are doing the job of telling the story uh, and and you can make the book even um, tighter and um, kind of more concise uh, because because of that. And that's just really cool. <laughs> um, I have a I have another nonfiction book. I have two nonfiction books coming next year, but one of them is called Your One and Only Heart um, coming out with Dial on August 15th. And I have to tell you, so it is a nonfiction book in poetry about the human heart and about its contrasting characteristics. Like the heart is singular and cooperative. It is electric and muscular. And, you know, it is simple and complex, all these things. So they're paired poems. And the illustrator, Lauren Page Conrad, works in um, paper collage. And when they, when they, you know, my editor suggested, like, what do you think? I was like, uh, sure. But then I was also like, how in the world is, is collage going to explain, like, how, how are you going to do that in collage? Like, all the intricate stuff yeah. with the heart, the anatomy. It is genius what she has done. It is just absolutely amazing. And like way beyond anything I could have imagined. And um, she uses colors, like different colors of the rainbow to kind of talk about each set of paired poems. It is absolutely astounding. So there's an example, like a very concrete example of something that I never in my life would have imagined ends up being the most incredible way to illustrate a story. Oh, well, I mean, it is winter here. I'm in Ottawa, so I'm already looking forward to the summer, but you've given me a, an additional reason to really look forward to August. That book sounds fantastic. Um, I'm going to do that weird thing of quoting you back to you, but I, I love this line. Um, you, you said, quote, when we write fiction for young people, we must write emotional truths, end quote. As a doctor and as a co-host of the brilliant podcast, listeners do check out STEM Women in Kidlet. I'm curious to hear more about your thoughts regarding STEM as a place for that emotional exploration too, because I think sometimes in the world of education, we try to separate and say the humanities, you know, artistic things uh, are where we can build our emotional literacy. And I, I sort of, my I'm taking my agenda and just making it completely plain for you. I think STEM is a place for that too, but I don't know that we're talking about it enough. Oh, that is such a fascinating question. Okay. To me, I will just, I'll, I will say that as 
somebody who has love, loved the fields in STEM, like has loved math and science for as long as I can remember, to me, there is beauty um, and truth in math and science. Um, that is also part of humanity. I think that like the history of discovering um, the laws of mathematics and the laws of science um, is an incredibly emotional history, right? Before we understood how the world works, um, we tried out all these other kind of ways of thinking of the world. And one of the most wonderful things about math and science is that you're always questioning, what is it that you know? Do we really know that? Like, what if actually it doesn't work that way? What if it works this way? Then how, like, what else can we, you know, how far can we push this? And when you realize that something you thought in the past was incorrect, you say, okay, that was that was what we knew then, but now we know more information and here's what we know now. Um, I think that's incredibly important for us as people, right? Um, I think that like we need to, this is part of what we um, are trying to teach children as we as they grow up, right? Which is that um, we can make educated guesses and sometimes we're correct and sometimes we're not. Sometimes we're partly correct and we have to amend what we thought was right. Um, and that's all part of life. And so that happens over and over again in math and science. I also think there's an inherent beauty to nature um, and the way that it works. And for me, the the you know the most beautiful part of it was the human body and how how all these things happen in inside us without us having to think about it. And how cool is that? And um, you know, be, in medicine, in medical school, before you learn about all the diseases and all the things that go wrong, you have to learn what happens when things go right, when things are working the way they're supposed to. And there's such beauty in that to me. So a lot of my nonfiction is medical um, nonfiction. And for me, that emotion, that love and reverence for uh, and awe for the beauty that is in all of us um, is at its heart. And so, um, yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for that. And uh, and if you look at, so there's there's the kind of math and science part of it, kind of math and science itself. And then there's the story of the people who discovered things. And one of the most exciting things about being alive today is that there's so much work being done, especially in the kidlit space um, of people telling stories of scientists and mathematicians who we never really heard about when we were younger and um, women and people of color. And uh, that's so important to tell those stories because growing up in this country, um, you know, and being well-educated, um, really, I thought that white men discovered everything. I mean, that's really the message that I got as I was growing up and that's not the truth. So uh, I think that's another really interesting aspect of STEM is who gets credit for what was discovered and who tells the story of how something was discovered. Uh, so there's lots of intersection between um, STEM and the humanities and um, social and emotional learning. Oh, that's, uh, you know, earlier this morning I was reading, I think it's from The Verge, um, a piece about Ada Lovelace and how, uh, you know, again, their work with embroidery is sort of what kind of led to the way that we think about algorithms and computer science but you know i'm in my 40s and you know i it's really only been recently that i've learned more about the work that ada has done um and you're right it's i i think this is why the work that you're doing uh, you know, when I work with schools it's become increasingly more and more popular to do sort of like a classroom audit of you know your your classroom library 
whose stories are told, whose are absent, who's getting to do the telling. And then also when we are sharing stories about marginalized people, is it, uh, you know, we talk about, is it just doom and gloom? Or are you actually sharing like the full scope, the spectrum, the humanity? Um, again, I think your books are so fantastic to add to the classroom space because there's so many different, as you were mentioning, like the different layers, but also the complexity of family. And maybe again, you, you know, you and I are recording this leading up to a holiday break for many. And that's a great time, I think, when um, we might be reflecting on how complex those dynamics are and what is closeness? Um, you know, what does it mean to connect across generations? There's so much happening in your work. So listeners, um, again, if you have not thought about bringing these books in, what you mentioned earlier, I'm also a huge advocate that children's lit is wonderful for older students. And I love that you pointed out that sometimes you're working with an illustrator and the visuals will mean you'll edit away some of the text. I'm thinking that's a brilliant analysis exercise for older students too, in looking through these books and thinking what might have been cut from here or you know looking at a different illustrator's style how would that choice have maybe changed or shifted the tone so thank you for that um you shared that in terms of representation the work of jumpa lahiri was instrumental in your journey as an author and i'm wondering if aside from being a big reader and i love when authors espouse how important it is to to read and and i feel like anytime i've seen an interview with you you talk about how much you love reading are there other artists or musicians, filmmakers who you find yourself appreciating as we move towards a deeper understanding that representation matters so much? Oh, yes. Okay. So I'm going to just talk about a bunch of stuff. So do it. <laughs> I have a cup of tea, please <laughs> take your time. Oh, my goodness. Okay. So um, at the risk of just repeating what everyone else has always said, um, Lin-Manuel Miranda and Hamilton blew my mind. Um, I was a government major in college, like read all those like founding fathers, all their documents and this and that, loved that stuff, nerded out. Um, never in my mind would I have imagined um, that it would have been portrayed in the way that he portrayed it. Um, and with that music, and it was amazing, right? And it was true. Right. But it was also completely new. And to see uh, um, black and brown performers playing the founding fathers and kind of thinking about what it really means to be American in that way with that music. Absolutely amazing. So mind blowing that um, I think just opened my brain and my heart in a way that I didn't expect. Um, I uh, <laughs> I love um lots of movies um but bend it like beckham is one of my favorites <laughs> um and i just love the i love that character's uh, it's about a girl growing up in uh london um who wants to play soccer football uh to them but she's um growing up in a traditional um uh sick household indian household and um you know her parents don't approve of it and so there's a whole lot of hiding um, what she's doing, but then needing to be true to herself. And I just love that movie. And like, anytime I get a chance, I love to watch that. Um, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm skipping all over the place. I'm sorry. Um, there is a, there is a classical Indian dancer named Usha Jay who um, does classical Indian Bharatanatyam dance. Um, and she changes it around and she and her compatriots do it to hip hop music. 
Oh. It is mind-blowing. I think she she had one video that kind of blew up on Twitter. It was absolutely incredible. But uh, Usha Jay, and that is a kind of meeting of the worlds that completely uh, kind of changed how I thought about classical dance and the kind of ways that we can use dance to connect different cultures. I thought it was amazing. Um, I have to say that just about everything that Mindy Kaling has ever done has meant so much to me personally, as somebody who grew up um, in this country and I'm of Indian descent. Um, she has, um, you know, her writing has always been amazing. Um, her acting is always really fun, but I have to tell you, never have I ever, I was surprised when we first started watching it. My, my daughter and I watched it together and, um, you know, we were laughing and, you know, she, it was very cringy, especially at first, but where she went emotionally was amazing. And I think she reminded me again how comedy um, can get us to that heart place in surprising ways. Uh, so that absolutely uh, blew my mind. Um, and I'm always looking for new stuff. I'm always looking for um, ways in which um, things are mixed up um, and uh, kind of different different uh, genres and different uh, aspects of the arts come together. Um, so yeah, I'm always I'm always excited about that. Um, some of some of what I'm seeing nowadays that I'm so excited about is in stark contrast to the stuff that I watched when I was a kid in the 70s and the 80s. And I was like, seriously? I was like, okay, you're gonna get like white people to play. Indian people and like how is that even like why <laughs> why do you need to do that uh I was always disappointed when I saw that um in uh in on tv and in movies and now I think we're we're so we're you know we're pushing forward and uh it's just it's so much it's a much better place to be in but there's still a lot of work to do yeah I feel like the way I often describe it is like there's momentum but the journey is really still in those beginning stages it's interesting even just to watch movies that were very popular maybe even a decade ago how problematic they were and you think about just decade after decade of a lot of the very harmful messaging um again as you say it is great to see that progress is being made but um i think again with this episode coming out at the start of the year it's a really great time to try and take stock of your media diet to think about you know the films that you watched last year, who were they directed by? How can we be a little bit more intentional with um, really trying to diversify that feed? Because I think it's it's so important, but you know, as you say, you kind of have to work to do it. Um, because I think if you look at just, you know, even just the way that social media can amplify certain voices and not others, right? There is that intentionality that um, that needs to be done with that. So thank you so much for, for those examples. I love anybody who enjoys Hamilton. There's actually a great, it's both a podcast and a TV series called Song Exploder. You and I have been talking so much about like creative Ooh. process and yes. they go behind the scenes and um, they talk specifically about the song Wait For It from the show and kind of uh, the process that led to it. It's super duper powerful um and and that always reminds me of the book i don't know if you if you know alexis co-wrote uh you never forget your first which is sort of a, a an updated bio of george washington and it's really interesting you know like a lot of the stuff that i was taught about george washington uh how do those myths get perpetuated and what was actually going on so that's a great text as well i know that you probably have plenty of reading to do but um Again, thank you so much for your time. I 
I just I'm so grateful for the books that you've already published and listeners, you know, we'll remind you again when Mirror to Mirror is ready, because I think in the world of education, we know that many students are struggling. And I really appreciate in that book the nuance of you can literally be someone's identical twin and not necessarily understand what's going on with them and just the reality that anxiety can present in so many different ways. So I think that book really opens the door to having that conversation around well-being, not at a superficial level, but really with all of the nuance and complexity that it deserves. So really looking forward to that as well. Thank you so much for putting that out there into the world. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, that book that book was written at a time when we a lot of us had a lot of anxiety. Um, and uh, I hope I hope readers um, I hope they enjoy the book, but I hope they see themselves in the book a little bit. And if they um, are struggling with something uh, uh, emotionally or mental health wise, that it encourages them to talk to people uh, about it, to talk to somebody who they trust, um, because that's it's so important. And I think that a lot of us are keeping a lot of things bottled up inside of us, especially young people. And uh, I hope it encourages them to be more open about it. I think it absolutely will. And I also want to mention, you know, I'm, I'm an advocate for using fiction as some of our like professional learning books too. And I know I've got a, a good following of school liter school leaders who listen to this show and you're often sharing books on parenting and caretaking. And I kind of want to suggest this is also a really mirror to mirror, I think is a great text to share with that parent and caretaker audience to also just sort of reflect on the way that sometimes we might misread what's going on with young people. Um, and again, I, I, I think your book does justice to the idea that I think sometimes we assume like, oh, young folks don't understand what the older folks are going through or talking about. Um, and I, I love that you kind of talk about that in the book as well. Thank you. Absolutely. Oh, young people, they notice. That's the thing. I think that's some of the old, the parent characters, the adult characters in this book are also struggling with some things. And um, I hope this book illustrates, um, because it is the truth, that young people are very aware of what's going on in our heads as well, um, what we say and what we don't say. Yes, no doubt. So again, uh, looking forward to that in March. Thank you again so much for all of your time today. Thank you. I had a wonderful time talking to you. Listeners, thank you so much for generously giving up some of your time this week to enjoy this episode. We'll be back next Thursday with more. In the meantime, if you appreciated this week's discussion, it always helps when you rate and review the podcast. Independent shows like the one you just finished listening to rely so heavily on those ratings and reviews. So if you've got 30 seconds, please do take a moment to do just that. See you again next Thursday.